And this morning, I'm going to read for us Psalm 117. And the sermon is both to you as a congregation, but it's also to Scott as a minister of the gospel. It is kind of like a double two-way mirror. You get to look into the way that Scott and I get to encourage each other through the preaching of the gospel that we do every day at the Trinity House as we help each other grow in faith and repentance as brothers in Christ. And also, it is a word to you. So if you would, if you're able and willing, would you stand this morning as we read together Psalm 117. It was what we used in our call to worship, and we read it together again to give heed to what it says. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, friends, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. The world's most famous bike race just ended. Anyone know what it was? The Tour de France. 21 stages over 21 days. If you watch the Tour de France, there's just a palette of colors. All the teams are represented by a different color jersey. 500 media passes are given to the Tour de France. Over 70 million people watch the race from their television sets. It's an amazing event to watch. You get to see all the latest bikes at the Tour de France. You get to see all the latest technology. You get to see everything in the cycling world that's new and fresh. It's an amazing sight to see. But as I've used this illustration before, so I use it again to say something very simple but important. No matter how good you look on a bike, no matter how much technology you have integrated into your chain set, or no matter how fast your gears shift, what is the one thing you must do on a bicycle to make progress in the Tour de France? Pedal. There are two rules of the Tour de France. You gotta pedal, and you gotta stay in a group. People make Christianity very complicated. But the gospel is actually very simple, though not simplistic. Oh yes, it's good to have a quiet time, and you should, and it's a good thing to do, to treasure God's word and to read it. We live in a day and age where we have the printed word available. We have it on our devices. We probably have Bibles. We have it cracked open on our bookshelves by the dozens, perhaps. It is good for you to be able to listen to podcasts. Yes, it is good and good for your heart to be able to listen to sermons throughout the course of the week. It is good for you to go to community group. Yes, it is great for you to do so. It's good for you to grow in community, to be known. It is good for you to go to a church. It is good for you to enjoy a particular worship style. All these things are important for you as Christians. Yes, they're important. But you know what? They, not a Christian, make. In the Christian life, there are two very simple rules. You have pedals that you need to pedal. And in the Christian life, those pedals are not be better and get your act together. Those pedals are faith 
and repentance. You see, if I have a bicycle here and we were to examine this bicycle and we were to look at it, it doesn't matter how good I might look on it. It doesn't matter what kind of technology that I have available to me. How do you make progress on a bicycle? Faith, repentance is what drives you forward as a Christian. Just like pedaling a bicycle moves you forward on a bike. You don't make progress by your good moral behavior in the Christian life. You make progress by two very simple practices. Remembering the beauty of what Christ has done for you again and again and again and growing deeper in your heart and repentance. This psalm, Psalm 117, is the shortest chapter in the Bible. But Scott, it makes for the longest ministry, doesn't it? Who do we tell? What do we tell them? And how do we tell it? That's the outline of Psalm 117. Friends, lower your eyes to the text and look. Who do we tell the good news of the gospel to? The initial line of the poem presents to us two different poles that, that create a tension. The first pole is the universality of the call. Twice it says the word all. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. That is the first thing we are to do, Scott, members of Trinity, those of you who are guests, is you preach the gospel to everyone. You preach it and proclaim it to all nations. It is a call not just for the Western American. It is not a call just for a particular class or race or people. It is a call to everyone. The second tension presented in this psalm is found in the word goyim, which is the Hebrew word for nation, or the word uma, which is the word for peoples, which literally means mothers, mother tongue. We tend to think when we read the word nation or peoples in the Bible, we tend to think of political nation states. The Hebrew words know nothing of that meaning. What the Hebrew words mean are the, are the unique cultures, histories, ethnicities of particular people, specifically defined by their languages. And the gospel is to go to all the world and to all languages, all nations, all tribes, all cultures, all peoples. The Bible assumes that there are ethnic distinctions in the world. And those are generally determined by the tongues of their mothers, their mother tongues, their umma. And so also, and also, Scott, you and I are called to preach the gospel not just to people who look like us, talk like us, act like us, dress like us, believe the same stuff we do. We're to preach it to everybody. And Trinity, you are to warmly embrace and receive all of those who may come to us from a different culture, tribe, language, nation, because why? One faith, one Lord, one baptism, as the Apostle Paul said to us. The more and more our church grows, the more and more diverse it grows. You may not see it, but I can tell it to you. There's amazing diversity even in this very room between the ways we grew up, our current situation in life now. There's amazing diversity. And more and more and more, that will be the case at our church. And as people walk through the door, listen, the only requirement for people to come to our church, the only requirement is for them to be a sinner. 
because the only perfect person in our church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only requirement for those of us who become members of our church, who profess the gospel with our mouth, is for us to know that we are sinners and to struggle over our sin, no matter how deep and dark it might be. And the longer you grow in the Christian life, as we say again and again around here, the darkness becomes shocking. But that is where the growth happens. So who are we to tell? Scott, you and I are to tell everybody. Does it matter if we're from Skytook or Owasso? They may be from Collinsville even. Nawada. We preach the gospel. And we welcome the different cultures, histories into our midst. And our church will no doubt it already has developed its own kind of culture. But friends, if that culture defines you rather than the gospel defining you, you need to run to repentance. Because it's not the culture of the church. Listen, more than anything else, when, we, when Scott and I did ministry in the Northeast, more than anything else, people might say, well, I've never really heard the gospel before. The gospel was kind of a moralism. I grew up in the church and have left it since then. You know, maybe I grew up in an Episcopal church, which are pretty predominant in the Northeast. But here, most people say, not that I haven't ever heard the gospel, they say, oh yeah, no, I got that. I got the gospel. I just don't like the church. Because they have so routinely been bruised and beaten up and manipulated by the church for years. Nobody's impressed by that. I mean, if that's what we want, a self-help organization, then we might as well just go run, run to the BOK Center for some self-help teacher because that is not what we hold out to people. We hold out the good news of the gospel, which brings us to our second point. Not only who do we tell, we tell everybody, no matter what their tribe, tongue, and nation is, the church, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, becomes beautifully practiced and exhibited all over the world. But secondly, what do we tell them? We tell them the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, it tells us in verse 2. The gospel is great, is his steadfast love toward us. And his faithfulness endures forever. The Hebrew word for great is the word gavar. It's a battle word. It's the word that you might use in the midst of battle when the tide has turned, the momentum has shifted. If you're an Alabama fan in football, you might use that almost every weekend they beat somebody. It's when the tide turns in the battle or in the game and you say, Gavar, victory is surely at hand. And here, for Gavar is his steadfast love. Surely his steadfast love is toward us. The good news of the gospel is not that it's our steadfast love toward him, weak as we are. The good news of the gospel is that it is his steadfast love toward us. We are a people who marvel at God's grace for us week after week after week. And if we really understand that, if it really makes the 12 inches from our head to our heart, it doesn't make us callous to good works. It makes us more fruitful because who would not want to give their life, their money, their time, their calling, everything for the glory of the triune God because of his steadfast love for us. One of the interesting things about the ancient world is that both the Greek fathers 
and the Latin apologists in the West and in the East. They would both read Psalm 117, and they would both understand Great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever as the heart of the gospel. And they would preach it in such a way that showed that their current civilization set itself up to receive that great truth. For example, the Greeks developed the term logos. And then in John 1, Jesus is what? He is the logos of God. And they never tired of saying that we as Greeks actually set up the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ because we had the philosophical structures in which the gospel so easily fit. It was the same in the West. The Latin apologist went to no end to show that the height of Roman society and ideals was fulfilled in what? Not the Pax Romana of Rome, the peace of Rome, but it was fulfilled in what? The peace of Christ, who was the prince of peace who provided the security that the Pax Romano could only promise you, who promised you the eternal joy that the Colosseum in Rome promised people who fought valiantly. It was found in Christ. And so also, underneath every fairy tale we ever read to our children, underneath every storyline of every movie we ever watch in American culture, underneath the American dream itself, the longing to own a home, to be secure and safe, is what? is the heart of what the gospel brings to us. His steadfast love toward us. It is his enduring faithfulness, not our own, that is the good news. Friends, the greatest thing that you and I need, and Scott and I are going to say this week after week after week to you because we need to believe it again too, is that we forget, for those of us who believe in Christ, we forget the gospel. And we run to try to earn our way into the inner circle of whatever field we may happen to have a profession in, whatever area of town we might live in, there's always an inner circle we're trying to get into. Oh, if I can only make land that client, if I can only make that much money, if I can only live in this house, if I can only redo my house this way, if I can only buy this, if I can only be this kind of dad. Listen, we are running for acceptance in a thousand ways because we forgot that we already are accepted in Christ. And we need to remember again that we are accepted in Christ, not by your moral efforts, but by Christ's sacrificial death for us as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. So we might not only be forgiven of our sins, but we might be clothed in his righteousness, not our own. And therefore, be a model to Owasso, Skytook, Collinsville, Nawada, Bartlesville, Tulsa, and the world as a snapshot of what the future community of God looks like now, today, when people come to worship at Trinity. It is a picture of people struggling over sin now, but it's a foretaste of what it will be one day when we are complete, made white as snow, perfect in holiness, with Jesus in joy for all eternity with our resurrected bodies, when we will run through the woods and splash in the lake to degrees of power and glory we can't even imagine in the city of God, when the lion will lay down with the lamb, where the baby will play in the adders, the snake's den, and not be harmed, when there will be peace, we get to be a picture of that today. And the way that you're a picture of it is not the way you think. 
It is not first by your moral example to the community, although it doesn't exclude that. It is first by your fierce honesty about your need for the gospel again and again and again. It is by your example of faith and repentance, the twin petals that move you in progress in the Christian life because of the work that Christ has done for you. We are to tell all the nations about the gospel, irrespective of our particular styles or desires, preferences. And we are to tell them the good news that Gavar, great, is his steadfast love toward us. And it's his faithfulness that endures forever. And some of you are sitting there saying, listen, like, um, are you kidding me? Like, have you seen the injustices of the world and you expect me to say, great, is this steadfast love toward me? Have you seen the bombings? Have you seen what bankruptcy does to a family? Have you seen what an affair does to a marriage? I haven't seen everything you've experienced. And I will never be able to say I've experienced everything you've experienced. Who is the us that he's talking about here? The us he's talking about in this context is Israel in the Old Testament. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that one day, someday, I'm going to take your people more than the stars of the sky and they will be a picture to the world of my covenant love. I'm going to be faithful to them. And no matter how dark it gets in the wilderness, Israel, no matter how much you feel like you've been forgotten in the captivity, Israel, I am with you. And Trinity, the same thing the Lord says to us. Even though it may be hard to say that his steadfast love to us is good news. He is with us in the Babylonian captivities and he is with us in the wilderness. And those of you who are struggling again and again with new questions about the nature of the gospel, keep asking those questions. Because it is a healthy thing to ask hard questions. Bring them to the table. Those of you who are angry at the Lord, cry out to him. He can handle it. He loves you. And those of you who are standing afar off in the service and you don't yet trust in Christ, what is it that you're trusting in? What is it that completes you? Something does. Let's be honest about what that is. That is your next step toward growth. You may not be ready to come to Christ or accept him as the gospel is proclaimed to you, but at least let's be honest and identify what your real Savior is because, oh, you are far more religious than you think, and you do have a Savior. And if you're like me, as you forget the Lord Christ, you don't just have one Savior, you have thousands that beg for your affections. Scott, the fact that his steadfast love toward us is great means a couple of things to us. Four, five. It means that people need to know that their faithfulness is not what endures. It's not what get them, gets them into the kingdom, as you have preached for so many years in Northampton County. It's faith in what has been done by God for us. And second, when Christians begin to understand that God is the faithful one, their faithfulness will be fruitful 
Because it is not rooted in themselves, but it is rooted in the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that it's great toward us, means that God's character and his attributes of holiness, grace, and love must drip from our sermons so that when people who are worn out by religion might find rest in his presence and not feel any need to come here with pretense. There needs to be two places in people's life when they are free to not wear makeup. One is in the privacy of their own home, and two is at this church. That should be true physically for those who choose to exercise it, and it should certainly be true spiritually. Four, it means that because repentance comes only through resting in what he has accomplished for us, God's faithfulness sets us free. We need to help people be freed from the Chinese handcuff that we've all stuck our two little fingers in. Remember those, those Chinese handcuffs you stick your fingers in and you pull, 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 and you can't ever get them out, right? You know what I'm talking about? Please say yes because this illustration, thank you. Those little nylon Chinese handcuffs that you pull, how do you get your fingers out? Most of us believe that you make progress in the Christian life by trying harder. Leave church, feel guilty about your sin, try harder. But the way you grow in the Christian life, the way you're set free is by relaxing. Lay down your deadly doings down at Jesus' feet and trust in him and him alone, gloriously complete. You push your fingers, faith and repentance as it were, together. And the nylon loosens up and you can take your fingers out and be free. Scott, you and I are called to tell them that again and again every week. Resting in God's love for us. It is not that hard. But our hearts make it nearly impossible to believe. And lastly, this passage is going to recoil on you and me if we start trying to make this church according to our own preferences. We serve this community Whatever preferences we may have, we ask first, what is the best thing for the culture in which we minister? Our styles will change over time. We don't chase the trends, but inevitably it happens. Our preferences may change, but we are first missionaries that happen to live in Oklahoma before anything else. We've got to maintain that perspective so who do we tell? We tell everybody. What do we tell them? We tell them that it's Christ's steadfast love for us that is the amazing thing about the gospel. And then how do we tell it? With joy! What could be better than telling people that we've been set free from the tyranny of sin and death? What could be better? Nothing is better than that. Do you remember... The movie Shawshank Redemption. It was a 1994 movie. Many of you don't remember it because you're too young, but some of us remember it. There's only one movie I've ever walked out with a group of men, a group of guys, and we didn't say one word until we were halfway home in the car, and it was after that movie. Because the movie's about a man named Andy Dufresne who was wrongfully convicted for killing his wife and her lover, and he is put into the Shawshank prison where he is abused by inmates and he works his way through the chain of work programs in the prison until he's at the library and the guards realize he was an accountant. 
And he begins to do the taxes for the guards. And eventually he begins to do the taxes for the warden. And the warden is a Christian in the movie. And he's a snake. Outward piety, always quoting Bible verses. But he was embezzling money and he got Andy Dufresne to use his tax skills to continue to steal money from the prison. One day toward the end of the movie, if you've seen it toward the climax of the movie, they have roll call and Andy Dufresne does not come out of his cell. And the guards run into his cell to rough him up. The warden comes in to find Andy because he'd become such a prominent member of the prison population. And he's not there, nowhere to be seen. And in anger, the warden picks up a pebble. Do you remember this scene? And he throws it against the wall, against a poster that Andy Dufresne had had in his wall. And all of a sudden, he hears that pebble go through the poster into a cavern and echo down chambers through the wall. And he rips off that poster, and there is a hole just big enough for a man to fit through that Andy Dufresne had been working on every night for 19 years. 19 years he was in that prison, held by a warden who threw Bible verses at him, who held him hostage to do his Bad doings. And the scene that I remember is the scene where Andy Dufresne is free after walking through a mile of sewer line with the warden's tax records tied to his ankles in a plastic bag and the warden's suit and his shoes. And he sits in the rain and the sun and he just shouts as loud as he can, I'm free. And that is a picture of every single one of us who by the work of Christ, chiseling out your hardened and hiding hearts, sets you free through the work of faith and repentance. So you might be able to stand in the rain, much like happened last night, and to sing, I'm free. Free from the tyranny of religion. I'm free. Free. That's the good news of the gospel. Because your greatest enemies are sin and death, which means that your greatest enemy cuts right down through the center of your heart. In the Tour de France, there are two very, very simple rules. One is that you must pedal your bike really fast, really hard. And the second one I said was what? You got to stay in a group. It's true for us too. Maybe once in 40 years, Greg LeMond could arguably have been the only one who did the Tour de France by himself and won. And as Christians, we tend to say, well, look at the thief on the cross. You don't need the church. Friends, Greg LeMond, thief on the cross are the exception, not the rule. You need the church. You need to draft behind your brothers and sisters. Because I need Boutros. I need Ryan Baker to help me grow in faith and repentance. I need Mike Phelps to help me grow in faith and repentance. I need my wife to help me go in faith and repentance. I need you. You need me. We do it together. And that's the beauty of the church. We grow in faith and repentance together. No matter how long it takes us, Jesus Christ is the one who has chiseled the tunnel for us. And by faith and repentance, we walk and we move and we find freedom together because great is his steadfast love toward us. Amen? Praise the Lord. It's the shortest psalm, Scott.
for the longest ministry. It may be true for you and for me. Amen.